I'm Ray Rogers. And I'm Brad Kepler. You're listening to Fix This, a podcast exploring big ideas and tech solutions to some of today's largest challenges. Today's episode kicks off a two-part discussion on a topic that gets a lot of buzz, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence and all of its different branches touch almost every aspect of modern day life today. And slowly but surely, it's becoming more and more prevalent in rural areas around the world. And it's a lot older than we think. And you sat down with one of our colleagues here at AWS, Julian Simon, to get to the bottom of some of the most asked questions that we see bubble up on a daily basis. And Julian has a pretty specific job title. He's the principal evangelist of machine learning and artificial intelligence at AWS, which basically means he's a subject matter expert and travels the world talking about all of the amazing things machine learning can do. He spends his days chatting with developers, thought leaders, and other techies. And you and Julian sprinted through an artificial intelligence 101 crash course. Let's take a listen. The first thing I tell people is, hey, let's define artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning. And let's make sure we understand what those three things are. The people are surprised to learn that AI is actually over 60 years old. The actual term was coined in 1956. And so the, the groundwork for AI and what AI was supposed to achieve was was actually uh, defined 60 plus years ago. So how has the field of artificial intelligence changed over the past 50 years? It's a long, complex story. I mean, bear in mind, you know, we're talking about the 60s and the 70s. Uh, collecting data was, was difficult and computing power was, was very, very limited, to say the least. Storage was extremely expensive. So Although, you know, a lot of fascinating research, a lot of fascinating algos were designed, those, those genius scientists, unfortunately, didn't have the IT capabilities to crunch complex models. And that's the AI winter thing, you know, that keeps popping up. Uh, the AI winter was the realization that, okay, we simply didn't have the IT processing power, uh, that, that the cost-effective computing and storage capabilities to run that stuff. Is that where the cloud comes in? Is that what sort of revived this area of scientific research and really gave it a new breath of life? So I would say the in 2006 and 2010, the rise of cloud computing just made computing power and storage and everything else you would need, databases, etc., affordable, elastic, on-demand, etc., uh, the realization that GPUs could be used for, for scientific computing and the fact that cloud uh, resources were um, you know, inexpensive, unlimited, elastic, etc., this really made it possible for even a student right, to, uh, to train models um, that were uh, literally impossible to train just a few years before. So is it fair to say that AI is really the umbrella term of all of these other things that we hear about, like machine learning? Yeah, you're right. There, there are so many different disciplines in AI. You know, uh, so if you zoom in on AI, then yes, machine learning is one of those uh, subsets and arguably the, the most successful one these days. But natural language processing is a, is a bona fide uh, discipline and computer vision is a discipline and uh, expert systems are, is another discipline. So AI, as you say, is really the umbrella and, um, and machine learning is under that umbrella. So what is machine learning? And you mentioned that it's one of the most successful or perhaps widely used. What is it? So machine learning is basically applying algorithms to a structured data set. So you can use either 
uh, statistical algorithms, and that, that would be machine learning per se. But there's also a subset of machine learning called deep learning, and deep learning is based on neural networks. The goal is to look at a data set that you labeled, that you annotated, and then you apply the algorithm to that data set trying to extract patterns. So let me give you a concrete example. So for example, there, I met this, uh, this, this great startup called Skin Vision. They build a mobile app that lets you take, with your own smartphone, pictures of your skin. Okay, If you see a spot or something that doesn't look quite right, you can take a picture of that, upload it to their server, and then they will apply image classification models. And they'll tell you, literally in real time, if there's nothing to be worried about, or maybe if you should talk to your doctor. And so the way they build this is because they have this large database of pictures showing skin, skin lesions and, and, and mold. And using expert knowledge from doctors, they, had, they annotated that data saying, okay, that's, this one's okay, this one's okay, this one's okay. No, this one is a melanoma. This is an early stage and this is a, an advanced stage. And they were able to train complex deep learning models on that data and integrate that in their mobile app. And so that, that's an example of using complex data with human expert knowledge, annotating that data and then training a model. That kind of innovation where you, you uh, literally put expert knowledge in the hands of anyone with a smartphone, is, I think is fantastic. And there's, a, so, there's so much happening in healthcare. And I, I believe this is one of, the, one of the fields where AI and ML make such a difference. As Julian explained, artificial intelligence is not a robot taking over the world. But AI does allow humans to accomplish things that were previously unthinkable. Our next guest uses machine learning to tackle an array of societal problems facing India today. And while he and the rest of his nonprofit team work in India specifically, the problems they're aiming to fix are present in most countries around the world today. From managing pests on farms to tracking a baby's growth using a regular cell phone with a camera to managing the spread of infectious disease, Wadwani Institute for Artificial Intelligence aims to research and develop models to improve lives for millions across the country. Dr. P. Anandan has had a 30-year-long career in computer vision and artificial intelligence. He is currently the CEO of Wadwani Institute for AI. He sat down with Ray to talk about the work he and the rest of the team are doing today. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of tools that you're building? Uh, so let's start with the cotton farming. Actually. Okay. Um, we, when we looked at how to approach agriculture, we spoke to the government of Maharashtra where we are and very quickly learned that cotton is a very important uh, crop. India is the largest cotton producer in the world and Maharashtra state where we are is actually the biggest cotton producing state. Yet, it's not an easy crop. Last year, 40% of cotton grown in some states in India, Maharashtra being one of them, were lost to one pest, American bollworm or pink bollworm, the two pests, but mostly American bollworm. Mm. And this, hap this kind of lossage, loss happens over and over here. And unfortunately, there's a spate of former suicides in India that happens as a result of continued economic uh, hardship. So when we were talking to cotton farmers, government, as well as private sector organizations, we learned that uh, the way in which pest management is done is that they put these traps where moths and flies get caught. Uh, they're sticky traps or there are pheromone traps. And then they count them. Yeah, and then what do they typically do from there after they do this manual count? The data that is captured is actually entered into an IT system that exists. And agriculture experts get together about once every two weeks 
during the season, growing season, to average the data over a block of 100 villages. And if it is above a threshold called economic threshold limit, then issue an advisory to use some kind of pesticide, the right kind of pesticide. But many times, this is not a reliable process. So they may not be counting well, so they may undercount or overcount. So much human error, right? Right. Yeah. Plus, the time it takes for this process, it takes you know one or two weeks for mm-hmm. the agriculture experts to f- look at the data, make the call. Then the advisory issue is not reduced locally, but yeah. coarsely. And pests are also living, moving things. So exactly. By then, it may be late. It, yeah, it may be late. They may be yeah. gone and right. on to another place. So we realized that we can uh, create an application where you take a cell phone picture of the trap and we can build an AI that can you know, detect the different pests and count it. There are six pests, it turns out, that are critical for cotton. And uh, we are developing models for them. And because there already exists a system of counting and then issuing advisory, we can plug right into it. And a key point we learned is that it's not enough to produce the AI solution. You need to make it a part of some type of a system approach that exists there in order for the solution to be useful. Absolutely. It has to be inserted into the process somehow, right? right? To cause real change. Right. And so I imagine that after you build these models and they're uh, in full effect, even if they're deployed in one city at first or one area, this will have massive implications for the speed with which farmers are able to respond to the pests because, like you said, it eliminates that one to two week human error filled counting period. But also, I imagine that this would have a really large and impacting ripple effect on the environment. Those are the goals. I mean, if we are successful, we hope that this will not only address the problem, but also address the other side effects of the current you know, way of doing things, which is overuse of pesticide. But I should caution one thing, which is that I think in the end, this has to be a part of an implementation. Whereas mm-hmm. we are doing the counting, we still have to go through the system that provides the advisory and so forth. And you have to stay put. In other words, we can't just hand it off and walk away and say it's done. Right. So just building a technology and putting it out there is only the first step. So, so another area of research that you're approaching is healthcare. Yeah. So in India, there are probably about you know, 600 million to 900 million, whatever the number is, people mm-hmm. who are in poor communities and rural areas. And in those areas, they rely on public health system, which is, you know, as hard as it's trying, is not enough. They rely on frontline health workers called outreach workers called ASHAs, accredited social health activists who go door to door, community people. There are about a million plus uh, you know, people like that. Typic- and these people actually go out into the communities that may not have other health care outlets. They are outreach outlets, workers, right? Yeah. They are not medical, you know, they are eight standard educated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the primary areas ASHA workers are focusing is actually uh, pregnancy and early childhood care. In the context of um, this problem, the several things that came up, and one that stood out was, you know, infant mortality. And the way in which infant mortality, one of the key triggers is baby weight at birth. If a baby is low birth weight, which is two and a half kilograms or less, then it's considered at risk. Mm -hmm. And if it's 1.8 kg or less, it's critical, right? Today, uh, you know, healthcare workers take spring balances and they use them in these clinics as well. So when the birth is in a clinic and these spring balances are used to weigh the babies. However, the process is cumbersome. It takes about two or three people to wrap the baby in a blanket, put it in a spring balance, etc. And the spring balances are not always working. They lost their elasticity, sometimes they're not available. So we find that often in you know poor countries like India, 
about 30% of low birth weight babies are not actually properly measured. And if you go to some of the records, they will, there will be a sequence of them that will say 2.5 kg. Because the health worker because just Because they decide, don't know and they just yeah, put they it. Yeah, they just, you know, highball it and put the number in so as to say that it looks safe or something, right? So we thought, can we actually take this out of um, a human kind of effort to have something that machine can measure? So we've, you know, working on a solution where you can take a, a, pic, a few pictures or a short video using uh, any cell phone camera these days to create a 3D virtual shape of the baby to size, meaning size and scale, then we can start making measurements like head circumference, mm -hmm. length of the baby, and also the volume, which directly correlates to weight because baby's density is fairly constant. I can even, so as a mother of a young child, I went through this recently and I was constantly going back and forth between my home and the doctor's office. My baby was healthy, but just regular checkups. That's right. how many touch points you have with the doctor. And so I can imagine even helping yeah. save time for really any young parents. Um, right. They don't have to go into the doctor to have a five-minute checkup where they measure the head, they measure yeah. the weight, they look, and they make sure that the baby is progressing naturally along um, right. a given growth curve. I mean, in a sense, we are optimistic because we are taking on a fairly challenging problem working you know, in a critical, limited resource setting. But the nice thing about all of this is that most of the training and the model building happens in the cloud with a lot of compute. And then the models can be shrunk and put on the cell phone where, you know, maybe if you can feel lucky, we can do it offline or at most maybe necessary for limited computation on the cloud. But the point is doing this takes the burden away from the frontline workers. And it's not only about uh, at birth, right? Imagine yeah. you want to track the growth of the baby for the first two years, you can do this. Okay, and so I was hoping that we could touch also on the last avenue of research that you mentioned, which is tracking infectious disease. Yeah. You specifically called out tuberculosis. Yeah. Um, are you tracking other infectious diseases or are you starting at that point? We're starting at TB. And one of the reasons is because TB is a big killer. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know that there are, TB kills more people than HIV and uh, malaria combined worldwide. So wow. there are about 10 million new TB, case, TB cases in the world, about mm -hmm. 4 billion in India. However, of these cases, 4 million, only about 1.5 to 2 million are known cases. The rest is a guess. And the part of the problem is that people, don't, when they don't go to a public doctor, uh, if they have TB, it's not notified. And it's contagious, right? Spread right. through cough. So catching actual number of TB cases and tracking them becomes a very important problem. One way in which you can potentially uh, detect where to apply your resources for uh, screening is based on knowing where the cases are, what your known cases, and then other factors that will indicate. So for example, infection, you know, if there is a lot of population density, poverty, um, you know, what do you call lifestyle hygiene, but also weather patterns and so on might indicate. So we are looking at how we can correlate a bunch of the peripheral factors with known data to predict where to look for new cases. This is huge because right. also potentially you could even predict not just where you need to look, but where you will need to look yeah. one day. Yeah. And yeah. then the other, other part of the TB care where there's a severe problem is adherence. When uh, doctors prescribe drugs, uh, people take it. But after a few weeks, you begin to feel better. better. Mm -hmm. So people stop taking it. Can we actually predict who is more likely to, to not follow through with the entire yeah. six-month regimen. And the consequence of that, right? Because if they are in a place where they can infect others, that's more important. So adherence monitoring post facto is being done well, but 
predicting who's likely to not adhere is an open challenge yeah so we are working on that if you enjoyed this episode tune in for part 2 of our discussion on machine learning and improved healthcare We'll talk to a fresh round of voices to get their perspectives on how machine learning is changing the way scientists conduct research. For more information on today's guests, visit wadwaniai.org. That's W-A-D-H-W-A-N-I-A-I.org or aws.amazon.com forward slash AI. A big thank you to our guests, Julian Simon and Dr. Anandan, and thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fix This, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll be here on the next one.